0: Hey everybody, it is episode 68 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas on an absolutely beautiful spring day. Steve is with me. Hey, Steve. Hello, world. We are excited to be coming at you today with a topic that was suggested by a listener. So we've got to give a shout out to Jennifer from Kansas City, Missouri for sending us this suggestion as well as a few others. Thank you, Jennifer, for the email. Today we're going to be talking about nutrition as it relates to running, pre-run, during run, and post-run nutrition. We've covered it covered it here and there in smaller bits, but we're going to spend a whole episode talking about how you fuel your run, both pre, during, and post. And we'll we'll talk about that as well as all the, as well as some of the issues we've seen runners had and ha- have and how to troubleshoot those as we always do though we've got some intro topics the first steve i have to just make a comment about some feedback that we received on the last episode episode 67 keeping it real with colleen quigley we got a little bit of feedback that we you know went overboard on being fanboys (laughs) yeah definitely kind of got called out from some of the rogues about being fanboys and for that i have zero apologies yeah i'm like guilty Guilty. <laughs> I don't think it affected our questions, though, right? We still got a good interview out of it. But no, yes. I don't
1: think so. I mean, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Me neither. I'm totally not ashamed. And if you haven't listened to ex- episode 67, I would say stop right now, go back and listen to that one, then get to this one because Colleen was awesome. All right. So let's talk. We've got some current events or a current event, and then we're going to do some predictions for track season because we're about to run into the spring and summer track season, and it's not a global championship year, so there's going to be some different twists this summer for every athlete, but we thought we'd give some predictions to look out for in the upcoming track season. First, Steve, we got to talk World Half Championships recap. We did our predictions on the last episode, so hopefully you've gone back by this time and checked to see how we did. We accurately guessed the men's winner and that Jeffrey Kamroor got it done with the three peat. But we were, we were off on the men's are on the U S men's side. Cause Leonard career DNF, which is a yeah, surprise. That was a shock. I mean, that's, that's a shocker given that he's pretty much killed every race. We've seen him run in the last 18 months, but overall as we look at this one, it was a really interesting day. It's kind of a loop course. The wind was was howling, you know, at times gusting up to 18, 20 miles per hour. And so the first part of the race, they were a little bit more conservative. As a result, they came through, the men came through 15K in a 62-minute pace, basically. So relatively slow for some of these guys as a result of kind of looking at each other and Trying to see who would take it amidst the wind and so forth, but then after fifteen k it was a track meet. <laughs> it was crazy, aided a little bit by tailwinds and some slight and a slight downhill finish. Camar pulled away and just absolutely demolished fifteen k to twenty k I think he split thirteen oh one that's just mind boggling, which is A solid 5k on the track not just solid a (laughs) world-class 5k on the track Uh, how many americans have gone that (laughs) on the track like three so so he basically ran four ten per mile from mile nine to the finish over the final four miles of so of the race and ended up beating who was basically everybody's consensus kind of second place pick from the beginning abraham cherubin who was about 20 seconds back of him by the time he finished an unbelievable finish from Kamrar. We expected him to have a good day, but to see him close like that is pretty damn impressive. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way he accelerates is just it, you know, they the one area that you can tell that an at, when an athlete can accelerate that fast that quickly in the middle of a race, you know, we we see we've seen Mo Farah do it at the end of a 5K or a 10K. But he very rarely does those kinds of shifts or, or surges, as they call it, in the middle of a race. But I think Cam War may be the best surger ever, and he got it from cross-country. Uh, he's he, he just, when he makes a move, um, he's extremely hard to stay with. Now, he hasn't seen the successes on the track that we would like to see from him, but now he's got a marathon major win. He's got now a three-peat on the world half. I think the only thing he needs to do now is... Uh, is, move is, up to the marathon. Move up to the marathon and, and, and demolish. And I, I, if he does move up to the marathon, it's exciting because I would love to see more surging in some of those those majors, in those big, big races, and see how it plays out. He's definitely somebody you got to be paying attention to when you talk about Olympic gold medal in the marathon in 2020, in my opinion. He's, there's a lot of guys we can talk about, but he's just consistently excellent. And, uh, you know, he's probably nobody ever really pays attention to who the best half marathoner in the world is or has ever you know greatest of all time in the half marathon because it's not considered the same level of 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 caliber of a race than a five than the ten k is or the marathon is. But I would say he's probably the best half marathoner of all time, at least from a performance standpoint in terms of getting it done,
0: yeah, three time world half champion now. It'll be interesting to see what he does this summer, if he chooses to go to the track or he continues to stay on the roads. On the American side, as we mentioned, it's weird the career DNF'd. I didn't really see anything after on why. Steve, I don't know if you did. No, I didn't. So he, he dropped out, but Chalanga ended up being the first American in 14th, which is really, really solid, in a 61 And considering their early pace... The fact that he negative split this race and finished in sixty one twenty three, I think for him is really, really solid. Mm-hmm. It shows that he definitely had more in the tank, potentially if the pace had gone out a little bit faster. And then the second American was Old Man Legat, got a ton in sixty <laughs> two sixteen, which is really close to his PR. And he was still about a minute back of that record, master's record w- he was going for potentially. But given the way this race dawdled early and with the conditions, there was no way he was going to get the record, given how the race went out. But to finish still in sixty-two sixteen, basically even splits for him, really, really solid. Got to give props to Lagat. Yeah, yeah, I mean it, that's a great race. That's awesome. <laughs> and and he was top thirty to get that result. And then yes. you had Digo Estrada ended up third American and fourth was Jared Ward, in sixty-three and sixty-four respectively. So probably not the days that those two wanted to have. But I would say overall solid from those four Americans. And then just weird that career dropped out. But given how much he's been racing recently, maybe that's not a surprise either. On the women's side, the big news was the favorite went down, didn't, give, didn't win. She got second. Jep, Jepkowski ended up second. But there was a women's only world record for the half by Kabidi from Ethiopia it's kind of weird that they have these designations. Jepkowski owns the world record in a mixed race w- in 64 and change, but Kabidi was, was the first to, uh, to run lo- you know, that low in the 66s for women's only race. She ended up 66-11, beating the pre- previous record, owned by Lorna Kiplagat by 14 seconds. And Shepkoski kind of faded and then came back to get second, beating Pauline Kamulu from, I believe, Eritrea in 66-56. So she ended up two seconds ahead of third place. This race also kind of went out similarly to the men, kind of dawdled for the first 14K. I say dawdled. I shouldn't really say that. It was it was fast, but slower than their potential for that first 14K. And then Kabidi just went with it and pretty much gapped the field from there to end up with that forty three second win. So I don't know, not much to talk about there on the women's side, Steve. I mean it's it's odd that Jepkowski didn't have it on the day, but But I she hasn't won a national I mean she's
1: she ran won an incredibly world. fast time and yeah. I think that the I think that the way that, that race went out pretty much was gonna make I it didn't guarantee she wasn't gonna win. It just meant that the playing field was leveled when I mean, she had run thirty seconds faster or more than that, right? Than right. the entire field. So You know, once you slow down, it creates a bit of a different... It gives everybody a little bit of a chance. My dad used to say that when I was in high school. You want... I'm like, why go any faster in a two-mile? Why go any faster for the first mile than I have to? He goes, because there'll be a bunch of slappies that have (laughs) have no purpose and no business being there will suddenly be there. And then what are you going to do if they happen to have a bit more of a kick than you do? So it's like the best of the best should stay, run run races like they're the best. But the conditions were just going to make it tough to do that. I think we got a little bit of a different race on the women's side because of the conditions and also because it went a little slower and it probably messed with her, her game.
0: Yeah, you make a good point. A time trial is very different than a race, and this turned into a race. Still super fast. On the American side, Jordan said decided not to start the race, unfortunately, so we didn't get to see what she was gonna do. Allegedly, she had some planter issues that were popping up. That So they were playing it safe with her. It doesn't sound like that's gonna affect her in Boston, but they didn't wanna put her out there in a race and potentially have that flare up even more. So Jordan did not race. First American ended up. American ended up being Emma Bates in seventy-one forty-five. Becky Wade, who we thought might have that spot behind Jordan, ended up in I believe seventy-two mid. So honestly, you know, not that great in the end, really for the Americans. But I would say for Emma, twenty-seventh place is pretty respectable, and that was a PR for her. So yeah, got to give. Gotta, gotta well, give she her had a props. great
1: race. That's a great result for her. Although she is. Um, she's one of those American females who we haven't talked about much, Chris, but she is somebody who, when I watched her run in college, I was, there's a marathoner. I could pick it out. So I do think in the long run, she's one who, again, another American to be looking for in the
0: marathon where we seem to be getting better and better and better, especially on the women's side. So we will see what she does. All right. So it's track season. Steve, whoop, whoop. I was just at Whole Foods grabbing lunch, and I noticed several very fit-looking people walking around. Yeah, the uni- downtown Whole university Foods pretty garb. much always has hot, has a, as
1: attractive fit. fit people, but it's fit a little people, bit different. Yeah, wearing
0: university garb. Exactly. We, uh, I saw a, a, a what looked like a Georgia sprinter and a UW sprinter rolling around getting lunch at Whole Foods. Which signaled to me that it's Texas Relays weekend here in Austin, which basically kicks off s- summer track season here. We've also got the Cardinal invite this weekend at Stanford, a bunch of other meets coming up. And so it is here. We're going outdoors now. We've got, you know, again, as I mentioned, this is not a global championship year, which means that usually you get some different things happening as a result. A lot of Athletes will use this as an opportunity to potentially try different events, maybe move up or down to work on different things. Or you'll see athletes chase records because they don't have to worry about racing so much. You might also see some athletes choosing to do more time in Europe than they would normally do it. So we're going to have some interesting things coming, but I thought it'd be fun, Steve, to throw out some predictions Mm -hmm. from us, at least for U.S. athletes coming up for this summer track season, just to be, you know, maybe a little bit provocative and hopefully clairvoyant about what is going to be coming. So I've got 3 to make. Steve, I'm not sure I'll get to 3, but I'm working and, on it. And we'll see what you have, but I'm going to I'll make my 3 and then we can debate. So number 1 for me, and I think we alluded to this move earlier in an episode in early January, but I'm predicting that Jenny Simpson will win a US championship. But not in the 15, in the 5k. She she that's has a pretty said she has said she's going to play up a little bit this year potentially, and so I'm predicting that she actually runs the 5k at US Champs, maybe doubles, but actually wins, beats Robri, beats Houlihan. Well, I don't think Robri will even
1: be there. Maybe not. I think she's working on another, getting a little bun, a little bun in the oven. Oh I yeah, think that's, right. Oh, think that's right. Oh I think that's what. That's I know, right. It may already have be done. I'm not sure, yeah, but. Yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So. That's what do you think? One. I I I I don't think that <laughs> I do think it would be very, very interesting to see if Jenny could do it. We know from her history, she was an amazing steeplechaser. She comes from a strength background. Although it's interesting that Emma Coburn left Mark Wetmore and Heather Burroughs a year ago because she they felt like they weren't doing enough strength work. Um so you know it it could that be a bit of a problem for Jenny? I don't know. But I just don't know how you can make that bold a prediction because I basically think that Shelby Houlihan is a better, right now, is a better 1,500 meter runner and a better 3,000 meter runner and a better 5K runner than <laughs> Jenny Simpson is. So. I think it's a bold, bold, bold statement. Um, and I think you're going to fail on that one. I don't uh-huh. think it's going to happen. I think, Fair I think, enough. I think if I'll think i do uh, – this one can count or not count since I'm a little underserved. Is it, it, This is not stretching out too far, but I think that Shelby Houlihan will win the 5,000-meter win for the women at the U.S. championships. And I think she'll also run – Um, I don't know. I, I don't think she'll run as fast as Roe ran. I mean, I think that she'll run probably somewhere in the sub-15 – I mean, sub uh, – 1440 range but I don't think she'll get I don't think she'll get Shannon's um, US record from two years ago I don't think that that's really going to happen but I think she'll be close I think she's running at another level and sh- that level of competition that she had um, at the Worlds this year is going to play out probably pretty well for her so I say Interesting. I call bullshit nice so yes. we've
0: got Jenny versus Shelby I hope I hope Jenny races a five just so we can pit it, pit, pit each other
1: yeah, we should. I mean, and then you think about, you know, I mean, Mariel is probably going to be rounding into shape perfectly well, and, you know, whether she'll run the 10 or the 5 or we'll probably run both. Um, I think the one thing that I can say, Chris, that I think is going to be, I think this US, this U.S. championships will be one of the greatest U.S. championships ever in terms of competition because I think you're going to see more aggressiveness, more risk-taking, more playing above and below, be above of uh, over and under your race distance to try to get experience and try to get things to happen. Um, so I think, you know, I think it's going to be, we should be getting our butts out there and watching that and then doing some play by play because, um, I think it's going to be some amazing track and field. I'm not sure if that's a big enough prediction cause <laughs> it, I've got some other ones, but I'll, I'll just, I'll, right, I'll so leave that so, one there.
0: So I say Jenny wins the five game. You call bullshit. All right. Yeah. We'll get through mine. Then we'll get to yours. Second, my second prediction is Emma Coburn gets beat by an American in the steeple.
1: Okay. I mean, I think that that's Another a great American. That's a, that's a, I think that that's a, I think a lot of people, our listeners may think that that's not going to be the case, but you and I, with our heavy research in the women's steeple, as we were prepping for <laughs> Colin Quigley's um, interview, we know that these late that definitely Bowerman babes are coming for that record for that. Yeah. And I do Courtney think that both. I do think Emma is due for a little knockoff. You know what I mean? And I think it's probably a time when that could happen. So I think that you're, yeah. I think I'm, I'm with you on this prediction. I think that it's, it's a good prediction. It may not happen, but it's a good prediction.
0: Yeah. I think, I. but I, it I think, means
1: problems in my opinion for, the people that do beat her or the person that does beat her, because I do think that if you put her in a cage and you poke a stick at her, Emma's going to come out fighting. So we'll see what will happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, my prediction here is based on two things, both the strength. I think Courtney and Colleen are going to bring to the season. And also the fact that Emma is due potentially for a, for a lull, because I think what you see sometimes when you shift coaches a lot of times, that first season you're kind of riding on the coattails of that previous coach, and Joe's job last year was much easier than it will be this year. Where very, he has very kind of astute, build, right? Yes, so so now if she's going to have a lull, it's this season, and and so we'll see, but it'll make it very interesting both at USA's and in some of the Diamond League meets where she might find an American in there as well. So, that's my second prediction. Did you actually officially say bullshit or not on that no, one? No, I actually say I agree with you. I okay. think that
1: that's a good – I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I'm just saying that one is one I'm not, not going to call BS okay, on. Okay. Yeah.
0: My third prediction for this offseason – or uh, this track season shifts over to the men's side. I'm predicting that Donovan Brazier will break the U.S. record in the 800 meters, primarily because if you're going to chase records, this is the time to do it. is a year to do it. I see him getting into some fast Diamond League meets, being able to jump on the, a train and get dragged to an American mm-hmm. record, potentially, which would fit both his tactical style and also his skill set as a young 800-meter runner. So what do you think about that one? I think that that's um, not too
1: far off. If he can figure out how to finish the last, you know, 15 meters, <laughs> then maybe that could happen. Um, but that's a really, really stout... American record. I mean, the one indoor was a little soft. You know what I mean? Um, I, I I don't know the number exactly what the time was, but it, it, the U.S. is Johnny Gray is one forty two six. That's like it's like approaching world record. And I think Donovan's a year or two away from the outdoor world American record. I think okay. he's. So I'm not saying complete and utter bullshit. I think as opposed to the Jenny Ray, Jenny one. If and if you <laughs> get that right, you're gonna you're gonna be able to you're going to be able to lord that over me for a long time but (laughs) i think donovan is going to be in that position but i think it's going to take a while i think it's just not it's not going to happen um right away i think it's going to be not
0: this year but uh some other year okay so you agree with me on one and you're calling bullshit essentially on the other two yep what do you got steve all right so
1: the first one i have is
0: um starting off
1: with uh where you started with your end, I'm going to go to the 800, but I'm going to go to the women's eight and I'm going to say that an American is going to break that American is going to break the American record, general miles Clark's American record in of 156.4 in the 800. So I'm not sure if I'm going to call it on Ajay or if I'm going to say it's going to be Raven or I'm going to say, but I think that the women's 800 now has gotten so stacked that, that it is, we have seen, and we've seen now what it takes you have to go sub 2 minutes to make a final at the US Championships. I mean, I think I'm not saying it's going to happen at the US Championships. I just think this year is a year where they will be less focused on what happens from a race per, for what happens from a race perspective and a little more focused on what happens in terms of time. And I think some American, probably Ajay Wilson will break the 800-meter world record. I mean, 800-meter American record. I don't think they're ready for the East African doper eight hundred record that's still on the books. That's absolutely ridiculous and should not be there. But um get okay. the American record they have to beat Gerald My- Gerald Miles Clark's one fifty six four. So one fifty six point three nine and uh and Ajay was close to it last 157. year. She ran one fifty seven so yeah. But that is... And she's done 156, 157, 158 repeatedly back and forth and back and forth. That is a big... It's still a big step. But for our listeners, just so they know, a half a second in the 800 meters is a long way. And um, it might sound like small potatoes, but... Gerald Miles Clark is probably the greatest women's 800 meter runner. I mean, I think Ajay now is on the on the cusp there because of her global titles. But Gerald Miles Clark, for a long, long time, was known as the best American women's 800 meter runner. So... It would be nice for Ajay to get that record. and Or if it's Raven who gets it, her, t- her training partner. And that training group now is just stacked with amazing 800-meter talent. So it should be interesting to see if that one happens. So what do you think? Am I, well, do you think it's crazy or I not? I think
0: it's definitely possible. But I actually think Brazier's more likely to get the men's record than Ajay. Really? Ajay is the women's only because – or two reasons. One is because Brazier – Will, I think, have the ability to follow and get the American record because there's enough gap between him and the top, top 800 meter runners in the world. With Ajay, she's relying on basically one or two athletes to get her help her get lead her to get there. And so she's got to get in a race with Semenya and Indian Saba and it has to be a fast race. And and so I and I think so I think she has fewer athletes that will help her get here there. And secondly, I th- I don't know what Semenya is going to do this year. You know, like if you told me, hey, Castor Semenya is going to be racing in hundreds, then I'd say, sure. You know, Ajay can get in there and follow her to potentially breaking that American record. But it's possible that she's going to focus more on the 15 this year Could be. in an off year and in, in which case that takes one athlete out of the mix i know her coach would like her to right so i think there's just fewer athletes that can drag ajay to that record so that's that's why i'm saying i think it'll be more difficult but she has all the tools for sure and i would love to see it what's your next prediction
1: my next prediction i'm going to go um as you did i'm going to go away from this distance and I'm going to throw a crazy idea out here, that the very best U.S. pole vaulter will not be in a, will not actually be able to compete in a U.S. jersey or compete at the U.S. Championships, and he's 18 years old and he's in high school, and I think Mondo Duplantis is going to be the best pole vaulter in the world this year as an 18-year-old. And I, I say this for two reasons because I want our listeners to start to look at the pole vault as a, you know, we're we all into the 800 up, but the pole vault's a super cool event. And we've now got a, an American, he lives in Louisiana. His mom's Swedish, so he, can ju- he doesn't have to ever worry about making a world team in Sweden. He can basically get put on the world team or the U- Olympic team. He doesn't have to worry about no hiding or anything else. He just gets a free ride to the Olympics or the world championships. And I think Mondo Duplantis, who's going to be jumping at the Texas Relays this year, will be the best pole vaulter in the world this year as an 18-year-old and sc- in, in a high
0: schooler. I can't believe he's actually here in Austin this weekend. He is. That is That's cool. a
1: reason to go to the Texas Relays if you exactly. didn't have other
0: reasons to go. And if there wasn't a perfect name for a <laughs> track athlete, Mondo, I, I just don't know what else would be, right? Mondo being the name of the track surface that a lot of major tracks use. That'll be fun to watch. I'm glad you mentioned the field events. Pole Vault is always exciting for those that get a chance to watch it in person. I think you kind of have to watch it in person the first, not the first time, but in order to appreciate it, you yes. have to be able to watch it in person at some point, especially high-level pole vaulting, because it really wasn't until I got to see it at the Olympic trials in Eugene, Oregon, that I really developed an appreciation for what these athletes can do. I mean, I always had an appreciation at some level, but I, I became a fan, I guess, watching it there live. So if you get a chance to go watch some pole vaults somewhere, whether it be Texas Relays or another meet, Go check it out. It's pretty cool. I don't think Mondo's going to be quite there yet to be the best in the world, but he definitely will be at some point. I think he's there's still, no doubt about that. I think that. he's a couple years away from that, but he will definitely be there at some point, and that's going to be fun to watch.
1: And the dude, like, I he doesn't eat any vegetables, from what I hear. Like, he's like, he's definitely got a personality. He has a huge personality. Yeah. I just wish he was vaulting for the U.S. Because if he was, he would get more pub, and we would our sport would be raised. um, Because this pole vault is a sport that would be shown on, on ESPN and on uh, you know the Sports Center. I mean, over and over again because it's so quick and short, and it fits sort of the way the American mentality is. But hopefully, maybe we can get Mondo to be somebody that even the US pays attention to from that sport. So I got my third prediction. You ready? All right. What do you got? Someone other then Centrowitz or Manzano will be the 1500 meter champion at the US 1500 meter champion <laughs> S- somebody's got to go down <laughs> this is softball isn't it
0: it is a softball <laughs> i mean come
1: on of course but what if central I mean, wins i mean central, central always shows back up central i mean he's won a, he's since Australia. 2011 he's only lost two and the only one that he's lost to is manzano so i mean he'll come yeah. he could come back it, it's a softball one but i could easily be wrong but okay if <laughs> yeah, i'm wrong yeah. then who will win well I mean... Will it be Ingles? Will it be Blankenship? Will it be somebody brand new? I
0: think, you know, I think it's going to be between Ingles, Murphy, Blankenship, that crew. Yep. I mean, uh, you know, Central could be there for sure. I mean, but I think this is a soft bet. I think it's a safe bet. We know Manzano's not going to win. And Centro's in Australia right now hanging out, filming like a <laughs> documentary about his life or something. So it sounds like... <laughs> You know, he's maybe taken this year a little less seriously as a result of not having a global championship. So I, I don't know. I, I think this is the year Angles is going to break through and make a make a move there because, you know, by that point, he'll have hopefully adapted to training with Salazar and company at the Oregon Project. He'll have gained some confidence from you know, indoors where he was in the mix, but tactically just made a few wrong moves in that final. But I would, st- I would put it between him and Blankenship if I were predicting. But, yes, I agree with you, Steve. That one seems yeah. pretty easy to me. Okay. But well, it's all good.
1: I was, I was working from a deficit. So you <laughs> gave me this last night, and I didn't really yeah. pay any attention to it. And then you came up with three bomb ones, and I literally <laughs> came up with this stuff on the fly. So It's all good.
0: I still like the predictions, and yes. we'll see. And I like the fact that you threw the pole vault in there. That's going to be fun. All right, so there you go. Six predictions for the outdoor track season. Hopefully that gets you guys excited. We'll, of course, be providing updates and recaps as these meets go down. And now we turn to our topic, Steve. We're talking about nutrition, this time basically fueling as it relates to your running. Again, thank you to Jennifer from Kansas City, Missouri, for giving us the suggestion to do a whole episode on this. Before we dive into and we're going to kind of break this into pre-, during-, and post run. Before we dive into those sections, Steve, I wanted to start with some just overarching commentary, some overarching themes that we want people to really think about and understand before we drill into some of the details in the practical application. So I've got a few things that kind of key overarching points that matter. And then I'm going to throw those out there and then let you kind of react and drop yours in as well. The first is that fueling... Does actually matter. I mean, in a half marathon and a marathon, depending on your pace, it matters less in a half, but for most of our listeners, it's still going to matter in the half. And in the marathon, it definitely matters because your body just simply can't carry the glycogen that you need to run 26.2 miles. You hit the wall for that reason. And so, fueling matters. And if you're listening to this, podcast, you probably already know that at some level, but I just wanted to make sure that you remember it, that it matters. It's worth experimenting with and worth dialing in what works for you, which leads me to my second point, which is that it is a very individual pursuit. What what works for one person isn't going to work for you. And so you really have to play with different options. And there's certainly rules of thumb that we're going to give you as starting points to try different things. But you need to ultimately experiment in your long runs with what works for you and then through process of elimination and trial by you know trial and error, figure out the formula that's gonna work for you on race day. And don't necessarily just copy what your training partner does because what works for them may not work for you. Last point I'm gonna make, Steve, is that you can train your stomach. You know, this is actually talked about in the book Endure where we had Alex Hutchinson on. Fueling has talked about in there as one of the chapters. But you can train your stomach to accept more carbs. You know, this is a big part of what trail runners do is basically, and athletes teaching their stomach to accept more carbs over a given period. Because when you first start training, you're not gonna be able to accept as many without stomach issues. So you can train your stomach. And so as a part of your experimentation, Make, you, make sure you give yourself the opportunity to adapt to whatever you might be trying and kind of teach <laughs> teach your body to accept the fuel you're putting into it. So with that as my preamble, Steve, what do you have to add? Any commentary on that? No, just that,
1: I mean, I, we don't have the science to this yet. Well, th- it's probably out there in some way, shape, or form, but the key thing is two hours, right? There's a sort of a number there where your body starts to, Everybody's body basically runs out of glycogen around that time, and that that that's not based on specific. Everybody has a little bit of a different play with that, but in my experience working with athletes for a long time, everybody seems to be doing just fine, even if they don't take fuel until they get to the two-hour mark, and then they just fall. It falls off the face of the planet. So, um, the other thing that I think is really really key to think about from a global perspective on top of it is is that. Um, you can't escape it. Like you just have you, anybody even who's thinking about, they see this topic and they're like, Oh, this doesn't apply to me. I don't even worry about that stuff. I don't even play with it. If you're running a marathon, it's unescapable. You, you are going to have to do this and sort of reiterating the thing that you said. But, um, and finally, the last thing I said, we'll talk a lot more about this in detail, but think outside the box. When you're thinking about your nutrition, everybody just thinks they have to go and get a gel. But there's a lot of other things, that we'll be talking about this specifically, but don't just use the fact that you can't handle gel as an excuse to not be taking fuel. Um, And we'll talk a lot more about that in detail. But generally, Chris, I guess that's sort of the overview thing to me that I would look at.
0: And the only other thing I would say is that what we're talking about here is specific to people that are trying to run fast on the roads for the most part. I mean, this... You know, because when you're, when you're trying to get a PR in a marathon or a half marathon, you're running at a pace where your body is burning fast fuel. <laughs> you know, you're not in fat-burning mode like if you're doing a 100-mile trail race, exactly. for example. So we're talking about situations where you're burning fast fuel. And in which case, the science is still strong that says, look, if you're going to be running fast and at those paces where you're trying to PR for the half or the full you need to take in carbs in order to optimize your training and certainly there are those who are quote fat adapted who might be able to do it a little bit differently and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we get into it but for the most part the fat adaptive fueling works more for those that are running slower and longer and so this conversation really is more specific to those that are running fast trying to pr over the half and marathon distance All right. So as we jump in, Steve, let's talk. We've got three chapters of this. We're going to talk pre-run, during-run, and post-run. Pre-run. And and by the way, I also want to make sure this conversation incorporates hydration as well. So we're going to be talking about hydration as well, though emphasizing the more food elements. Hydration is also an important part of this mix. So pre-run, I want to talk about basic kind of protocols that we would recommend. And then Also, I want to talk a little bit about carbo loading on the back half because I know people are going to have questions about that. But from a standpoint of of our coaching perspective, we want to make sure that you're thinking about your pre-run nutrition. And for me as a coach and talking to my athletes, that starts the night before, really the day before. Because for some people, lunch on the day before your long run or the day before your race might actually be more important than dinner. And... And there's this mythology out there, and again, we'll talk about carbo-loading more in a second, but there's this mythology that you have to, quote, carbo-load in order to have a good long run or have a good race. And for the vast majority of people, it's not either physically possible or practical to truly carbo-load the way you would have to in order to get benefits from it. So, our recommendation as a re- as it relates to pre-run fueling is that you eat you know a solid amount of food but a relatively normal amount of food with a relatively normal mix of food for you you know we talked about this a little bit with Megan O'Hare when we had her on talking about performance nutrition but it's you know if if you don't eat pasta <laughs> regularly don't eat pasta the day before a long run or the day before a race because that's probably going to mess with you eat the things you are comfortable with and familiar with. Personally, I tend to probably skew just slightly more complex carb heavy in the day before a long run or a race, but not in any crazy way and certainly not adding things that I would normally eat. I don't typically eat pasta, so I don't usually eat pasta before a long run. But I will eat rice, and so I might do rice and chicken the day before a long run or a race. So our overarching message is is that you're, you're, Day before meals are important, but that they should be relatively normal sized and relatively normal kind of composition of foods that you normally eat. Yes. I mean,
1: basically, anybody that's trying to carbo load without doing it, without having paid attention to the last month, Chris, I mean, basically, if you're going to carbo load effectively, you need to be planning a month out in order to do it really right. The one thing I can guarantee you is a very very large stool. <laughs> it's pretty much going to happen no matter what. You're going to you're if you try to load up on pasta or some other carbohydrate that you don't normally take, you're probably going to make yourself into a mu- put yourself into a much more difficult position the night the night of, the morning of um, and it's it's just it's an antiquated process. Number 1, it works, but it but there's so many that we now have much easier methods to do it. It was done by athletes back in the 70s and the 80s when they didn't have this ready fuel that they could take in the context of the race. And so before they would have to drink defizzed Coke or do other kinds of things, that was Frank Shorter won an Olympic silver medal, which should have been a gold medal, an Olympic gold medal basically on D-fizz Coke. <laughs> and Coke, um, which is pretty much what's in... A gel pack or a, a, a pack of power gel or a pack of goo, right? I mean, it's the same basic- High,
0: high fructose corn right. syrup. Right, high fructose corn syrup. Different vehicle. Right.
1: So, but those car, those folks who did do the carbo loading were planning way far out in advance. They did it many. They did it time and time again to try to dial in the specific details. And so, yeah. And Myth and number one, carbo loading doesn't work unless- We've even tested it, Chris. You well, were part unless, of a...
0: Yeah, unless you're doing it in specific ways. There's there's two carbo-loading protocols that science has confirmed actually can work. One of them was used kind of back in the French shorter days where they would basically not eat carbs for about three days, four days maybe, about a week before the race. So starting about a week out, they would deplete their glycogen stores by not eating carbs for a Period of time. And then after that, they would kind of load up on carbs beyond that depletion stage in order to have your body really accept more than it normally would carry in terms of glycogen. So that's one protocol that has proven effective in scientific testing. The second one, which, and I'll actually link to a blog from Jeff Knight, who used to coach with us, who's got a master's degree in this kind of stuff. He, he, Uh, Also, talked about a secondary protocol, which is as effective but just different. Whereas, where you simply, for a period of about five or six days in that final week, would overdo your carb intake for every single day of those five days to the point where you would actually be counting grams of carbs. I did it for a week before Martian, the Martian Marathon back in, I think that was 2014 or 2015. And it was insane. The amount of carbohydrate I was <laughs> eating, <laughs> uh, to the and it was real work to try to make sure you were getting because it not only did it matter how many grams of carbs I was getting at, at relative to my body weight, but also the percentage of macronutrients relative to, to fats and other things. So I was having to look at all that, tracking in an app. It was crazy and complex, and I you know I don't know if it helped me or not ultimately because it was a hot day that day, and we can't really we can't really know. I mean. I, it didn't hurt me, I don't think, but I'm not sure if it helped me. So, so basically, there's two protocols that we know work from science, but they're very, very strange. They're very unusual, and they require pretty much a week of work to eat a certain way. And so any carbo-loading you might do the night before a race is not within those protocols. No. So basically and it's going to
1: cause the problem that I alluded to earlier. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> so basically what I tell my runners is, "Hey, look, here's information on carbo loading. If you want to try it, that's fine, but just know you're 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 playing with fire a little bit because this is a gamble. But also know that if you're not doing that, if you're not following one of those two protocols, then you should basically eat as normally as possible that day before both in quantity and type of food that you're eating. And of course, The biggest thing beyond that is just avoiding the things you know are going to mess with your stomach. You know, don't eat a bunch of dairy, for example, (laughs) the night before a race. If you know that messes with you, don't eat, you know, just avoid your trouble foods for the most part. Otherwise, eat normal quantities and in normal amounts. Personally, the day before a race or day before a long run, I like to have my meal a little bit earlier than normal. I tend to be a little bit late uh, dinner eater, so I might eat at 7.30 or 8.00 normally, but on big long run days and on before races, I try to pull that forward a little bit. I might even have my biggest meal of the day as lunch the day before so that, you know, I'm not in full on digestion mode as, as I wake up early for a long run the next day. So that's the point there. And and then to me, what's almost even more important than the pre-run meal the night before is the day before hydration especially in our Texas heat. If I'm not hydrating with electrolytes the day before and making sure I'm going into that long run appropriately hydrated, then I tend to feel it more the next day in a negative way than, than what might be affected by the food I take in. So that's the day before. Morning of is the next thing I think, you know, the biggest thing. One, one more thing before we
1: move away from that is uh, we didn't talk about sort of hydration protocol in the week before. Do we want to address that at all or not at all?
0: Sure. I know you have, you kind of have an approach there. So talk about it. Yeah, it's not,
1: I've adjusted it. I continue to adjust it because I think most of the folks that I have do it, do not do it correctly, even though I try to give them explicit instructions. Um, But what I basically think is so many people try to hyperhydrate on the Saturday prior to their Sunday marathon. Um, Or any race, basically, and they run into the problem that uh, Alex Hutchinson talks about in his section of Endure that talks about hydration and nutrition, is that they basically flush their bodies of all the electrolytes they might naturally have had just by drinking so much water. So what I'd like to do is to try to have my athletes do a little bit more of what I would call a hyperhydration or a hydrate more than normal in the entire week before the race. So that I'm not dealing with a uh, just a 24-hour prior to race super hydration plan that basically flushes them of most of their electrolyte balance. Yep. So basically, if I if I gave someone an explicit instruction, it would be I used to say this it would do it about a week out or seven days out, but now it's pretty much when you get on the plane is just make sure that you have a bottle of water next to you and that you're hydrating with water consistently throughout that time frame and not just in the last you know, 12 hours, 24 hours prior to the race because by the, if you start doing that 36 or 48 hours prior to the race, then your body's going to start to tell you if you're missing something from a electrolyte balance and you'll want more salt or you'll want a little more sweet or you'll want some other thing. And your body's doing what it naturally does, which is just to find – Tells you to. It starts to crave the thing it needs the most, and um, but in a twenty-four hour window of time, you, you know both nerves and um, sort of the hand and mouth disease that I've seen so many athletes have right before races because they're nervous. They have to do something with their them, their bodies. They just make poor choices, and so all I'll say, but i just want to reiterate and say that just try to be consistent and not overdo your. Hot water and your hydration prior to the race even though you do need it chris
0: yep you know and there to me it's all about watching your urine i've talked about urine color here before on the show but you don't want to have crystal clear urine because that means you're probably overdoing it on the water intake and not getting enough electrolytes with that you want that very very faintly yellow urine and certainly you don't want it too yellow which means you're not getting enough of either so watch your urine color i'm obsessed with my urine color steve it's weird but do you take pictures of it I don't because I'm not that type of person, but my wife would. Yeah, she would. She would. Definitely I totally do it. believe it. Yeah. <laughs> she takes pictures of all sorts of bowel If your if your issues. wife,
1: if Amy McClung were a 15 year old boy, there would be a lot of pictures <laughs> of fecal, a lot of bowel movement pictures. I think she would well, probably be I into mean, that.
0: I, there's a lot of those anyway. <laughs> yes, so there are. Yeah, it would be out of control. <laughs> yeah. Well, we won't. Yeah, we won't go there too much. So. So that's kind of week and night before morning of, you know, to me, this is where I see probably the most variability in terms of things that work for different people that morning of the race morning of the long run. For me, I try to get up early enough where I can put a little something in my stomach, you know, right away. I'll, I'll kind of have whatever I'm going to eat prepped. You know, it's not a lot of calories, probably two to 300 calories of something that I'll take somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half before my long runner race for me that can come in the form of dry cereal could come in the form of a bagel with a little bit of peanut butter could 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 sometimes come in the form of a banana depending on the planning I've done so a little something far enough out because that does for me a couple things one it, it kind of makes my stomach happy two it also gets the bowels moving so I can hopefully have you know, some activity before I actually have to start, and you know, and then of course I'll pair that with some something usually with electrolytes in it, as well to kind of continue my pre-run hydration. I also take by Ucan before, which we'll talk about in a second, which is mer- which is more of an in-run tool. But I know that there are some people that don't eat before they run and they have success with that. Some people might just do coffee to get the bowels moving and clear their stomach, and so you really have to play with what works for you. I don't think there's any silver bullets here, except to say, of course, avoid anything like milk or <laughs> something with dairy or something that's going to mess with your stomach going into your run or race itself. Yeah, and those, this
1: is the this is the part that is, in my opinion, discretionary, right, Chris? Like each person when you're that ner- you're going to be nervous the morning of your race races start really early and most people don't even if they trained at five thirty in the morning frequently they're not they're not high they're not fueling prior to it so this is something for our new marathoners or new half marathoners who are just getting at it you guys are you guys just do what you normally do um but those who are been racing consistently are going to want to race consistently this is the part that is really super idiosyncratic and individually based. Whether you eat or you don't, I love it when my athlete says to me, "I like to have a bagel and some with some peanut butter and a banana before my race." Because I'm like, okay, check, 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 super easy. But that's not what everybody's tastes are. I have an athlete who <coughs> I coached a couple years ago who is uh, was European and he ate a steak before every. He actually literally had a <laughs> steak delivered to his room. And I was like, that's not going to work, but it it worked for him. And I decided not to have that conversation anymore because it worked for him. So I think that's what Chris and I are trying to say here is (coughs) the more fuel you can get into your body before the race, the better, as long as you're not overdoing it, right? You don't want to do too, too much because you're going to be nervous. The problem with you, you take too much fuel in in the morning um, is that you'll have to stop. You may have to stop before you have to take a pit stop before the race, but most people just won't. Do that because they're nervous before the race.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Just don't overdo it. It needs something that's relatively normal for you. My pre-race, pre-big race meal of choice is Lucky Charms. Mm-hmm. I'll eat. They're magically delicious with no. <laughs> with See, no you believe in magic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With <laughs> no milk, <laughs> I'll eat <laughs> Lucky Charms out of the bag with my hand. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the perfect balance of <laughs> sweet and you know grainy, <laughs> and it works for me. It's a, it's a little bit, it's part fueling, part superstition. Yes. <laughs> Both of which are incredibly important. Right. So so that's pre-run. And again, a lot of that is just to make sure you're getting a little something to your stomach, kind of can be happy, and also to hopefully kick-starting the, the bowels so that you can clear yourself before you actually have to start your race or your long run. Then we get to during run and this is probably where we'll spend the most time, Steve, during run nutrition, we'll talk during run hydration, and then we'll kind of do a little subchapter here on common issues that we've seen as coaches. From a during run nutrition standpoint, again, this is a very individual, but I kind of break up the categories of options into three different buckets here for things you should think about or consider. The first is sort of the sugar bucket. We talked about, you talked about the D-Fizz Coke <laughs> that's one way of getting sugar. But gels are the most common way in today's marathoning world where you're just basically taking in sugar. There are chews, gummies, there's lots of different versions of gels, different flavors. All those things are essentially there to help you bring in carbs in an easy way so that you can absorb it and use it right away. And what form you take it in and what brand and what variety of you you know gel or or chew that you prefer is going to be a very very personal thing and choice i also throw in here that you don't necessarily have to buy the standard gels that you might find in a running store because i've used even candy before in a race when i did my half ironman triathlon i used skittles for my (laughs) for my run uh, for my sugar on the run because I I just want something fun and interesting. You know, the colors of the rainbow, so to speak, there. So I've done different things. Some people use dates, you know, which is another way. Kind of bizarre, I think. But another way that I've seen runners get sugar during the run. So lots of different ways to do this. You have to find what works for you. I think the most important thing is that once you start, you got to keep coming back to it in certain intervals. My standard protocol that I recommend as a coach is you know, start your gels or your sugar option at one hour in to your runner or workout or race and then come back to it every 30 to 45 minutes, depending on what interval works for you. Because what happens is your blood sugar spikes, your insulin spikes as a result. And then if you don't come back to that sugar again, then you're likely to hit a trough before you need, you know, before you need Uh, to get sugar again, so you might hit a lull there, so you want to keep coming back to it once you start, otherwise you're going to hit a dip that might affect your race. So that's the sugar option. Second option, this is one I use personally, is called You Can. It's a cornstarch based product, this is a more slow burning carb, you take it before, some people can also, also take it during, but you take it in kind of shake form. Finishing it about 30 minutes before. It gives you anywhere from two to four hours worth of energy. Personally, that's all I take in addition to supplementing with Gatorade during a marathon. But I have runners who will take that before and then start their gels later in their run after a couple of hours. And so that's an option. I like it because it's simpler. It's so I don't have to carry anything or at least you know some people don't have to carry as much when they go out there. One thing to note that it is kind of gritty the texture isn't for everybody It doesn't dissolve in water so you're kind of taking this more thick little gritty shake form um, type of a thing but I would definitely try it see if you like it it's an option third general category of options are things that kickstart your fat-burning response sooner Vespa is one that we've sold there are others out there they're basically some sort of amino acid concoction In the case of Vespa, it's amino acid and beeswax and some different things that basically kickstart your fat burning stores sooner so that you're digging into those fat stores versus having to rely only on the glycogen that you have in your cells. Vespa is something that really works for a lot of people, but it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. That's something you also take before. And then with Vespa, you would take something else about halfway through. So those are the three basic categories but you have to kind of pick and choose what works for you and try different things. The other thing I'll say about that before I let you jump in here, Steve, is that generally I recommend that you not start supplementing with one of those options until you're over two hours in your long run or you're over two hours in your race because ideally you want to make your body more efficient first at burning the fuel on your body before you start supplementing. Supplementing because, as you say, that two-hour threshold is kind of the magic point where you start needing more. So I'll stop there, Steve. What do you? What are your thoughts? I got a couple things just
1: to add to it. I mean, it's pretty. It, it, what you just described is, you know, bulletproof. It, that's that's the basics. Some other things that I've run into. Um, I'm going to leave the issues for that next this topic that we're going to talk about in a minute. But a few things that I've run into are. Um, I found some people, especially the folks that come from the ultra world and then move back to the to the to the marathon world, they get so used to eating real food in the context of their race. um, And they have a real hard time once they've sort of hit that real food threshold of like a a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or, um, you know, some there's a whole variety of different foods. If you go to a trail race, typically you run into a basic what I call the buffet table where you can eat anything you want to. Um, but people who do a savory option or a non-sweet option and they, they it works for them in ultras, when they come back to running marathons, they just can't find anything that works for them. And what I have found is that the world of baby food has exploded mm, in epic proportions point. and there are so many great options from a baby food perspective. And they're packaged now like gels are. Um, usually a little bit bigger and sort of a, a larger size, but that just means you don't have to tear the the top of it off multiple times so that's another thing for those of you who have sensitive stomachs or can't handle sugar another thing to look at go down your baby food aisle especially if you haven't had, don't have kids or you haven't had kids in a, and it's been a while you will be absolutely amazed at what's available on that aisle in the grocery store and how many different varieties of food that you can have from cauliflower to sweet potatoes to to completely savory, to sweet, a wide variety. It's not just applesauce anymore, Chris. There's well, so Indian, many different things. and even Cliff
0: has basically their own version of adult baby food right. that's not called baby food as well.
1: Right. So that's, that's another piece of the puzzle that some people may want to look into that, that works for them. I have a few folks who just can't do the sugar that way. Um, another thing is to realize that if you're taking your fuel and your gel— you still need to try to take in water, Chris. You know, we'll, we'll probably maybe talk about this, but yeah. one of the things that I've found so many times after an athlete has had a poor race that they will say, I was supplementing my gels with Gatorade and it was going Gatorade and gel and they either they get too much sugar in their system and they, they get really sick and then I can adjust that. But they don't drink water and water is so crucial and critical to everything that happens from a metabolizer from the body metabolizing all this fuel that's going into the body. You can, in the context of the race itself, if you haven't overhydrated prior to the race, you cannot drink too much water during the run, uh, even if you stopped at nearly every water stop. And none of you are going to do that because you're trying to run fast and it's hard to get to every water stop. But be sure that you're consistently hitting the aid stations for water in between whatever, you know, sugar or fueling that you're doing. Water is not a fuel, but it's absolutely crucial and essential to the process of getting that fuel to work for you. And so many times after a race, I realize an athlete's dehydrated, even though they took a lot of gel or a lot of electrolytes or whatever else. It's because they, they just did not hit. They didn't think they hit, had to hit the water stop table. They could just hit the, the the gel table or the Gatorade table or whatever it was. They didn't need the water water is as, as essential if not more important than almost anything else that you take on the race course. So Chris, those are the two things I would add. I um I have a I have a I have a little bit of a different protocol in the way that I have my athletes fuel during the race. Um but it basically just follows two basic tracks. Did you eat breakfast? Did you not eat breakfast? Cuz those people who don't eat breakfast or don't and don't take a Ucan, they've got to fuel before an hour or, or cuz they're not, they're not gonna. They're gonna have a real problem, and so I'll get them on what I call the 30-minute cycle, and they'll just take a gel every 30 minutes. Sometimes that's a real problem for athletes. So what I'll say is, um, for my faster athletes, I can usually say that they can go every four to five miles, and my slower athletes, then I'll say you know every three to four miles. So because sometimes people aren't tracking that 30-minute time frame they're looking at their pace per mile so you know the way these geeky meters work and the way that everybody gets dialed into those paces sometimes that can be a problem but um, so that's non-breakfast is every 30 minutes or every you know four miles or so and then those who do eat breakfast chris i start like you do about i start at 10 miles um and then they do they do if their stomach can handle fuel we do 10 we do 15 we do 20 and we take an extra along the route um, if their stomachs can't take the sugar very much, we do 10, we do 16, and we hold on to one more for our emergency at the end. So those are the protocols that I've used. Um, but again, those are just my general talking points. Uh, I do dial it in individually with each one of my athletes to be sure that they tell me what's worked for them and what hasn't worked for them, and then what kind of other things we need to do.
0: Yep, that makes sense. On the hydration side, I completely agree. Got to hydrate early and often. There was an inter- interesting study that Alex Hutchinson actually recently referenced on Twitter where basically, prior to I think it was 90 minutes or under 90 minutes of an effort, then it's okay to drink to thirst, meaning, you know, drink when your body's kind of giving you that cue. Once you go beyond 90 minutes, you actually have to kind of preempt that cue because you're gonna create deficits that you may not be able to catch up to, especially depending on the conditions. So it's just a case for, you know, kind of early and often you don't want to overdo it, but you want to make sure you're hydrating early. With electrolytes, to me is the important thing. And for some people, Gatorade is going to work for you if, if if you don't have a problem with the sugar, but for others, especially in warm climates, you may need to consider supplementing with salt tabs or other vehicles for delivering salt. And so, especially in the summer, a lot of our Texas runners will be using salt tabs to support their runs, or people that have issues with Gatorade with their stomach, they will incorporate salt tabs like Endura Lights into the mix. The general recommendation on salt tabs is that you, you take one before, or one serving before, and then one serving roughly every 45 minutes to an hour, depending on your sweat rates, and so that's something you have to kind of experiment with. But that's the general protocol that I kind of tell people as a starting point on salt tabs. Definitely something to consider if you've ever had hydration issues, dehydration issues, heat issues, is considering supplementing your salt with salt tabs. One other thing, Steve, before we talk about issues <laughs> that we've seen, and kind of some real, real life experiment, experience, I want to talk about the no nutrition runs. So we've been incorporating no nutrition runs now into our rogue training for a few years, you especially with Team Rogue, and you've done it more so even this year. I've gone crazy. Kind of gone crazy with it. We've definitely incorporated it into our podcast training group protocol this year in a in an explicit way. What's the thinking behind doing a run without nutrition at all? There's there's twofold
1: well, just to caveat to begin with this is not meant to be implemented in the marathon itself. So there's, I'm not a fan of no nutrition race day. Okay. But, um, so there's twofold reasons why I came up with, or I didn't come up in a sense. I kind of did. I just sort of self-educated, tried to figure it out and try to see what would work. Um, and now it's, you know, this was 15 years ago before a lot of people were paying attention to this aspect. Um and, uh, Basically, the first is physiological, and that's that you need to train your body for that inflection point at which you shift from burning the fat fuels that are within your, the fuel the sugar, glycogen fuel that's in your body, you will hit a threshold where you're, or an inflection point where you will shift into, you'll run out of those fuels, and your body will shift into starting to burn fat fuels. And for most people, that is like going from running on, jet fuel to running on like peanut butter, right? It just, for a lot of people who have been, who have not experienced, not, uh, not experienced running on, on fat fuels. It's a different game. It's doable and it can manage, but you, but it's such a shock to the body. And so what I began to realize was that I needed my athletes to do more, have more of those experiences where their body started to get to that inflection point to burn the fat fuels. And, get used to it and manage it. Um, so that's, the, that's sort of the science space. The, there's another piece to this, which is the psychological piece, which is when that happens, which is natural, normal for your body to shift into fat fuel because no one ever practiced it and never did it. It, it just messed with their heads. And at, at a crucial critical point, usually around two hours, where positive feedback loops were very few and far between and then anything that would send someone into a negative mental spiral would play out pretty quickly, and there was it was very hard to catch them. The only way I could get they would get caught is if they tick a f- fuel with some caffeine or a little bit of sugar. They might get a little bit of a brain shot where they would feel a little bit better, but it wouldn't last very long. So, what I decided was I just we just needed to start practicing it, both from the sense of you know becoming more resilient, and also to try to train that inflection point where the b- body fat. While we were after we'd done this and implemented it non-scientifically for probably four or five years, we had an opportunity to go to the University of Texas's Sports Science Department, their Exercise Physiology Department, and we got to sit down with Dr. Eddie Coyle, um, who had basically created his own his own fuel and had um, and we were talking to him about the various ways that we could apply with our, with our training programs, scientific principles, like where, where a VO2 max test might be valuable, where different things might be valuable. And we got into the discussion of nutrition and he basically just absolutely shat on our idea of doing non-nutrition runs. From his perspective, it was your body needs fuel. Why would you ever go without it? Especially if it's readily available. And what I asked him was, have you ever run a marathon? And um, he, his answer was no, and that's fine and dandy. He, he didn't have to run a marathon. He's a sports scientist. And then I said, and 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 who are you testing in your lab? And he's testing people in his lab who are six-minute milers, you know, at the slowest. Those are the only people that he was testing. He was testing super elite a- athletes that were elite, and so and and cyclists who are non-weight bearing and they have a completely different experience. So I just said to him, is it possible that someone who is running an eight-minute or a nine-minute or a ten-minute or a twelve-minute mile might have a need to not do fuel and his statement was i don't have any science to back that up but it makes some it's got some common sense you know so there's some common sense to that and i i understand why he might say that as well why he wouldn't back it necessarily but it was that moment where i was just like no we're onto something and i don't need the science to tell me that i just know that we're onto to something um so it was with great pleasure that i read you know, endure where he talks about many different folks who are doing this. You know, another person, John Shrupp, who has been on this has been preaching the non-nutrition run and also preaching a a different protocol with it more along the lines of what, what Alex Hutchinson does, which is he basically suggests the night before a long run to do a hard, fast 5k, 10k workout, a VO2 max workout to guarantee that you've burned out some of that glycogen. Don't eat any fuel, anything that, that after you finish that run, wake up the next morning, and do your long run with no nutrition. And I do think that that's probably the most appropriate way to implement a non nutrition run. I just haven't sprung that little difficult section onto my athlete, too. Would probably bulk a little bit more. I'm 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 just trying to do a soft entry, maybe here. We
0: could do it after Zilker Relays, and we could September.
1: I mean, also just so other people know, my non nutrition run is a no joke non nutrition run. I've now built up to
0: thirty miles. We
1: go to thirty miles, where I guarantee that the athlete has gone over that point, very far over that two hour window of time. It's either thirty miles or four hours, whichever comes first. By the way, I don't have my. Athletes who run 10 or 11-minute miles running five-hour runs, I don't do that. but um, So that's sort of where I came to with this non-nutrition. Of course, anybody that's running a spring marathon, that's not going to be implementable. But um, we think it works. We'll see our results this spring in terms of how much better we get performances and how much of a difference this makes. You know, I'm probably guessing, Chris, we're going to get a 1% to 2% increase in performance from implementing this protocol I mean that would be the op that would be yep. the optimum but for anybody that wants to know what a 1 or 2% or even a 3% benefit would look like run the math on that from a minute from a second's perspective and it it could play the difference between 90 seconds to 2 minutes a difference in somebody's marathon which could be pretty huge
0: For you it's also a mental thing right Correct trying to basically show people that hey if you can run 24 or 30 miles on no nutrition then Holy shit, what can you do in the race itself? So that's a piece of it, too. This time, I think we had three of them in the in the programming. If three I would, or four. If three or four. Well, in we'll the have a fourth for those coming in the n- so who run not, later so than you're Boston. Not, you're not doing it every week, but you know, every month or I'd so. I'd say once
1: a month af- out from about four months out. I would say optimally I would do about four of these.
0: Mixing that in with fueled runs. And if people are wanting to experiment with this in their own training – Key, there's a couple things to note. One is that you don't eat anything that morning either, so no breakfast. You wake up, you're in a fasted state. You stay in a fasted state. You can do coffee, you can do water, but nothing with calories or sugar in it until after the run. Now, some people think, "Whoa, well, well, you know, that's going to be harder not having breakfast than go and then going and doing a fasted run." It actually makes it easier, shockingly. As I've experienced <laughs> a few times doing no nutrition, 30 milers, because basically if you eat something, you spike your insulin, your body's expecting something else soon enough and you don't give it to it for f- four hours <laughs> and then it gets really grumpy. So if you don't eat, then it stays in that fasted state from your sleep and it actually makes the run a little bit more easy, but it's still difficult. But basically you're training your body's ability to burn its own fat stores. Right. In addition to doing other runs where you're training your body to burn fuel efficiently. So it's all part of the mix. And if you're, and I would say probably see that that's a, I don't want to say more advanced, but that's a kind of level experimentation that sits beyond. Figuring out your basic fueling first. I'd right? say three to four marathons in, you could start playing yeah. with this, but you shouldn't yeah. be playing
1: with this in your first and second marathon. There's just too many other things that you need to experience from running that distance. And Chris, I want to share one more thing. On those non-nutrition runs, I do ask my athletes to carry their fuel of choice with them. One one gel or one whatever they take just as an emergency, because sometimes we do have athletes bonk pretty badly, <laughs> um, it, I think that that's exacerbated by sort of a, a an expectation of epic fail, and sort of they kind of talk themselves into that. But I have um, I do ask people to take the gel, one gel with them as an emergency precautionary measure, um, just so that in case something goes bad out there, um, they're covered. In so, case of
0: emergency, break glass. Correct. The gel. Correct. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, but. But as I was saying, so basically, first step is experiment, figure out the fueling system that works for you, then play with the no nutrition stuff down the road as a second order kind of thing to play with. Now, let's talk about issues, things you've seen, Steve, kind of practical stuff, because there are some people where this is a real struggle, figuring out what works. Most commonly, I see it as people that have trouble accepting sweet stuff, especially Artificially sweet stuff not artificial sweetener, but you know high fructose corn syrup based Gels or or even just sugar or just sugar and massive quantities really of sugar massive yeah. people Yeah, and that can cause all sorts of GI distress that manifests in ways that we probably don't want to get descriptive about <laughs> but But what what have you seen in those situations work for people that have issues with sugar my ba- The
1: baby food fix has been a game changer, really. For a lot of people, um, I get them to try that. I have an athlete right now, Julie Black, who's been running marathons for a long, long, long time. And she's never fueled in all these years. And I'm just, this year, she's got, um, I just have, I just decided that we just needed to. She has a goal that she wants to achieve. And she's got. Be- she got behind from an injury perspective. And I just know she's going to have a tough road to hoe out there at Boston no matter what. And so I want, I weren't working with her for the last six or eight months to get her to take fuel. And she, you know, I asked her to take a gel on any run that's over 16 miles, no matter what, or take whatever fuel she's going to choose for at, at that. And she's now beginning to tolerate the gels a little bit. She's gone with the baby food some, the apple, applesauce some, she kind of goes back and forth. I have another experience with an athlete that was, this was a real game changer for me because I began to get to the point where I thought the athletes that couldn't take in sugar or fuel or gel during the race that they were just going to be, we were just going to have less than optimal performances because I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I just kind of had a little bit of a, a flash of, uh, logic that kind of came to me with one of my athletes, um, he's now running, he was a 320 marathoner, couldn't get under 320, couldn't get under 320, he just ran 254 for a marathon. So he crushed his goal and that's happened in a very short window of time in about a 18-month to 24-month window of time. And this athlete um, was really getting worked up and nervous prior to the race. And he wasn't eating breakfast before the race because his stomach was so upset by, by what he just thought, he didn't feel like eating it. So then he would have all this bile or just like stuff in his belly his stomach was just ready to explode and he would just throw sugar in there and he's jostling it while he's running and so you just have like a little molotov cocktail ready to go off what were those pop rocks you know it's like when they told us when we were kids don't swallow the pop rocks they'll pop they'll blow up in your stomach well i think he was having a scenario like that and i just said so are you eating breakfast he said yes i eat breakfast but i just have um a piece of fruit and I was like, maybe if we get some carbohydrate in there, maybe if we got a slice of bread or a bagel or something. And I just said for the next race, I was like, let's just force it down, and and eat some eat some real carbohydrate the night before the race, just enough to get in there, and then let's have, and let's have a piece of bread or a bagel or whatever. And so he basically turned his brain, and I said, you need to start practicing it in workouts. So he started doing it in workouts and hadn't had too much of a problem. But the problem with that, Chris, was that he had been taking gels with almost no problem before the race, before his in his training, because he was eating some fuel before it. So that's another thing that some people do. If you are not a breakfast eater and you have a lot of problems with, with sugar, I, I've now found maybe one in ten people, Chris, who have had this situation where they're not eating any food prior to the race and then they're having this explosion later on in the race. Um, because of adding all that sugar to a volatile stomach that doesn't have anything else in it. And so that's a piece that has really helped me. And again, it helped that athlete, Arik. He is now um, running much, much, much faster. And he still has some stomach issues, but they're now not, they really hit him late in the race, maybe 22, 24, and they're manageable at that point. They were hitting him consistently at 16 miles, and it was a real problem. And uh, that's another thing that people should look at. That's one big problem issue that, that that can be addressed
0: yeah i mean it kind of speaks to the point that i made at the beginning of you can train yourself to accept more if you just do it and we could give other examples of people with a myriad of stomach issues but it boils down to look if it's not working for you or you're having problems don't just accept it that this is well this is just me i it's it's always going to suck i'm always going to explode at mile three of a race because there is likely a protocol that work for you, and wor- that will work for you. And you just got to keep experimenting with the options that we talked about. You know, this is a situation where you can walk into a running store, and most of the sales associates you're going to run into are probably runners themselves. They're going to have really good working knowledge of the options that they carry, and and then just buy a bunch of things and try it over a period of five, six, seven, eight weeks, and kind of do it by process of elimination. My biggest thing with runners is that they just don't change too many variables at once. You know, (laughs) it's like try one different thing (laughs) and see how that works. So you can at least isolate what change actually affected you in a good or bad way. And so don't try changing too many things at once. Otherwise, you'll just end up confused as to what worked. Okay, so that's during run. Anything else on during run, Steve? Um. No, just reiterate your salt tab or
1: Enduro Lights um, or exceed. I mean, or succeed. Whatever it is you take. Yep. This is an easy fix that almost anybody's body can take. The only problem I've ever run into with people taking salt tabs is whether or not they could actually take a pill. You know, take a capsule yep. during a run. Um, but that's another thing that if you have not, if you cramp late in races, um, and you're doing plenty of 20 plus mile runs you've done three or four in your cycle and you're cramping it's almost assuredly because of your electrolyte imbalance if you are cramping late in races and you haven't done the first place to check though this is a training thing not a fuel thing so many people will tell me i'm cramping late in races i'm clamping late in races and, you know, I had my lead, you know, Scotty McPherson had this problem for a while while he was cramping and I realized he wasn't running enough 20 plus mile runs. He was running up to 18 and sometimes 20, but he wasn't doing three or four 22, 24 mile runs, which I think really are essential to getting that, um, that, that cramping to not occur
0: late in races. So yeah, you got to be ready for the distance. Yes. I will give a shout out to a product called oral IV, which is actually a electrolyte supplement that's not in pill form that you take. Mm It just comes in liquid form in little small plastic tubes kind of like you might have little, little portable eye drop samples. It's kind of in a tube like that. You just break off the top and then take in a little bit of liquid that is contained inside there that's highly concentrated in electrolytes. I used that in a marathon last year in Austin and it worked for me. So if you don't do pills you might check out oral IV. I know that's a product that Paul Terranova, who runs with us on yep. the trail side, uses. All right, let's talk post-run. Often not discussed, often not talked about. and But, you know, it's not that complicated. I know it's funny watching certain sports, you know, triathletes typically, a lot of weightlifters really think about their post-run fueling in a really rigorous way, <laughs> whereas runners don't That's at correct. all. Correct, And it's important. It's actually talked about a little bit in the in the book Endure as well. Now, you know, I kind of fall in the camp of it's important, but it's not something you have to be crazy specific about. You know, you can get really specific in the science on the percentage of carbs versus fat and proteins you should be having in your meal within X minutes after your long run. And all that stuff, you know, probably has a scientific basis. But for me, I kind of keep it relatively simple and I just tell people have to have a good-sized, balanced meal within an hour of their long run because there is a window when you finish where your body's kind of in the mode of it's more receptive to take taking in refueling in terms of refueling your glycogen stores, but it's also in this mode of being more accepting to taking in the building blocks to rebuild your muscles that you've torn down during your long run. And so you have a window there. It might be you know up to an hour and a half, two hours, but generally, I say, you know, the rule is within an hour, get a good balanced meal in. It doesn't have to be super specific on carbs, fat, protein. There are percentages you can read out about there. But if you just get a meal that has all three of those things in it, you're going to be fine. Pair that with the proper hydration to get back to fully hydrated. You know, for me, the barrier, as I, as I said earlier, was just looking at my pea color It's like I wanna be make sure I'm peeing relatively quickly after my long run and then I get that urine color back to faint yellow from dark yellow as quickly as I possibly can because that's a part of giving your muscles the building blocks to repair themselves after your workout. Breakfast tacos.
1: (laughs) Perfect. The perfect the perfect post long run fuel. Egg, bacon, tortilla. You, those of you who don't live in Austin, don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, it's got it all. But you it's can got it all. choose your correct.
0: Choose your magic there. But just get a meal in because it is important. It does help kickstart that re- recovery process and should make your runs in the subsequent days better.
1: And also, Chris, you know we. Uh, one one thing I would also argue I would like to, not argue because I'm a, a lover of this particular thing, but right after your long run, you probably should wait about it at least 30 minutes to an hour and make sure they hydrate, and take and refuel and everything else before you have your first beer. Because while beer does have fuel, it will also has alcohol in it, which will be a problem. Um, and I see so many people, especially if they finish a marathon, have two or three beers afterwards. And I'm like, Oh, just put some be- food in your belly first before you do that. It's not terrible for you. It's just, you need real food and real food. it'll, it will make you think that that's It will make you think it's enough and it's not.
0: Yeah, and the thing, you know, Colleen referenced this in her bit when she was talking about nutrition and granola is that sugar is inflammatory. And so it's just a reminder, as you said, eat real food. Don't use your long run as an excuse to eat a bunch of shit. And certainly there are days where we do that. I'm guilty as charged on that where I might see you know cookies or cake or something and just want to pound that stuff right after but just know that when you're doing that you're taking in something that's going to be inflammatory so try to get real whole foods in a balanced mix of carbs proteins and fats within an hour or so of your long run and you will be better off for it so there we go now that is thinking about fueling from start to finish And hopefully it gives you some tips that you hadn't heard of to optimize some of your training and your long runs. Any final thoughts on that, Steve? No. I think we covered a
1: a good bit of stuff. Just, again, just to reiterate, eat well. Lots of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. Protein in whatever ways that you need to get it in. Uh, You know, slaughter a (laughs) a calf every
0: once in a while. Uh, okay, so there you go. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap this up, Steve. Uh, I've only had one beer on this yeah, podcast right. too. Didn't go it's crazy, crazy. <laughs> crazy. So, but if you have specific questions on any of these topics, of course, send them to us, and we'll get to it on our next listener questions podcast. My email, as it always is, is chris at roguerunning dot Otherwise, thank you again for listening to episode 68 of the Running Rogue podcast. You can check us out on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.